Welcome to Catholic Radio Indy's Lunchtime Podcast Sampler. I'm Kent Blanford. Each week, we'll bring you a sampling of some of the best Catholic podcasts being prepared and shared out there on the internet. We are now deep into the season of Advent, surrounded by music and lights and parties and shopping, so I'm glad you tuned in to join me in a deeper look at the spiritual side of the season. One of the more popular spiritually based contemporary songs that you may hear in this season is a piece written by Mark Lowry, Mary Did You Know? It's a beautiful song that poses a complicated question. What did Mary know about the Christ child she would be bringing into the world? Our first offering on today's sampler comes from Dr. Edward Sree and takes a deep look at just that question. This is Mary Did You Know? Of course she did. Hi, I'm Edward Sree, and welcome to All Things Catholic, where real faith meets real life. How much did the Blessed Virgin Mary really know? How much did she know about her son, that baby she was carrying in her womb those nine months, or when she held that child in her arms, or when she was raising him as a little boy? Did she know who Jesus was? Did she know that he was the Messiah, that he was the one that fulfilled all the prophecies? Did she know that he would grow up and perform all these miracles, giving sight to the blind, making the deaf be able to hear, making the lame man be able to walk again? Did she know that? Did she know that he was the savior of the world, that this child was coming to die for our sins? Did she know that Jesus was divine, the Holy Son of God? You know, in this month of December, as we're leading up to the week of Christmas, there's a popular Christian song that raises this question. Uh, Maybe you've heard it before. You probably hear it if you listen to Christian radio. Maybe you've even heard it in a Catholic church. The song goes like this. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you delivered will soon deliver you. Mary, did you know? And I I think that's a fair question to ask, to ponder. How much did Mary understand? I think Mary actually knew a lot more than most Christians today give her credit for. And, And I mean this even just on the natural level. I know that in this week, the Catholic Church is celebrating the great solemnity of the Immaculate Conception, uh, where we believe Mary had unique, extraordinary graces given to her right at the moment of her conception. She was preserved from original sin. So according to Catholic doctrine, yes, Mary knew a lot and, and was, was given a lot of wisdom from God, of course. But I want to just bracket that for a moment. And I would just say, even on a natural level, just on a purely natural level, just being a good, ordinary Jewish girl growing up in a Jewish family, in a Jewish culture, she would have known a lot, a lot about the scriptures, and she would have made a lot of connections from the events that were unfolding in her life. I think she knew a lot more about her son than many Christians give her credit for, and that's what I want to take a look at in this week's podcast. So welcome to All Things Catholic. I'm your host, Edwards Three. I want to give a big shout out to uh, people in the Indianapolis area in Carmel, Indiana, where I was able to be with them for their Advent Parish mission this last week. A wonderful blessing to be with them all. Uh, also, a shout out to 
uh, folks at the Holy Name Parish in Nashville, where I was able to give a presentation, and the wonderful people at EWTN. Uh, I was able to do their Advent retreat for their staff uh, at the wonderful shrine there in Alabama, right by Mother Angelica's tomb. It was, it was quite an experience to be able to be there. So pray for EWTN and all the great work that they do, and, and if you could pray for all these wonderful people right there in the middle of the country, from Nashville to Indianapolis, down to Alabama, all trying to have a great Advent and follow the Lord. Well, turning to Mary is someone that we should always turn to throughout the year, but especially in these weeks of Advent, thinking of what she was doing to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. <laughs> and, you know, she had a lot to prepare for as being being the mother of the Messiah and getting ready for that big event. But how much did she really know? Again, I I, I like pondering that question, and I. I get where this Christian artist is coming from and asking the question. It's fair to ask, how much did Mary really know? But as I mentioned, I I think she knew a lot more than many people realize, even just on the natural level. Because think about this, for a a Jewish girl growing up in the first century, what, what was her pop culture? Like, what was the pop culture around her? What was she listening to? What was she thinking about regularly? What what would she have been talking about with her friends and her family? What was it that was constantly filling her mind? Like, did she have YouTube? Is she she pulling out her phone and checking Instagram and and, and Twitter? Is she is she getting on the ESPN app to figure out the latest scores of her favorite teams? You know, uh, and watching the latest movie to come out on Netflix. You know, uh, no, they didn't have all that back then, right? You know, that's where young people today, when they're growing up, what are they filling their minds with? They fill their minds with sports. They fill their minds with the news, or they fill their minds with what's trending on social media, or the their playlist and their their favorite musical artists, or they they fill their minds with the latest shows and movies, and and that's our pop culture. And in our pop culture today, that, that if we fill our minds with that, then I could make an allusion to something like. You know, if I said something like, oh, I hope I have a career as long as Tom Brady's, you know, you all can make a connection. Okay, Tom Brady is extraordinary. He's still playing quarterback, winning Super Bowls into his 40s. It's incredible. You know who Tom Brady is, the famous NFL quarterback. So I just say Tom Brady, I make a little illusion. You make those connections. Or if I take a line from a movie and I say something like, uh, may the force be with you. <laughs> you know, if you if you know the movie Star Wars, you're picturing you know Luke Skywalker, or, you know, and and you 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 have a, a context for that, right? So you can make a little allusion to something in the culture, that, because this is what we share in our culture. These big, you know, whether it's a, a music icon or a, a famous movie or a famous athlete. So in the first century Jewish world, they didn't have the Tom Brady's. They didn't have their favorite musical artists like we have today. But what was a part of their pop culture was the scriptures. This is what they filled their minds with regularly. This is their playlist. This is what they're listening to, you know, all the time. You know, they they go they have, they hear the scripture readings in the synagogues week after week after week. They celebrate the major events in their people's history, what God did in their lives, whether through all the different feast days throughout the year, whether it's Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles or Hanukkah, they they pondered the prophecies and they pondered the great stories of Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David. 
and they knew that this, this story of salvation was going to reach its crescendo, going to reach its climax. And there were all these prophecies about some savior figure that was going to come. He was going to be called the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of David, the royal king was going to come and liberate the people from their enemies and, and extend God's kingdom to the ends of the earth. There were all these prophecies there. And this is, this is just what an ordinary Jew, I'm not talking about somebody that had a PhD in scripture. I'm not talking about a monk in the, uh, you know, in some monastery, you know, uh, they didn't have those things back then, but I'm just like, just an ordinary Jew. This is what they grew up with. And so I think that Mary, when she hears things from the angel Gabriel or from her kinswoman, Elizabeth, uh, or from the shepherds at the nativity or the prophet Simeon at the presentation, I think just she hears God speaking to her through those people, through those events, and she could easily make connections between what Gabriel says and what the Old Testament prophecies were saying, between what Simeon said in the temple and the presentation scene uh, and the prophecies of Isaiah. I think she's just making connections like, if I say to you, the force, may the force be with you, you, you you're picturing something from Star Wars. You know, I say a, a line from a, fav, a famous song and you're able to make the connection. I, I think that's what it was like for Mary. Let's just consider this, for example. I'm going to give a couple examples and then I want to go back and just unpack that that song, that popular song, Mary, Did You Know? But first of all, just, just take the Annunciation. If you go to the Annunciation scene in Luke chapter 1, verse 31, the angel announces to Mary that she's going to have a son. She shall call his name Jesus. And then the angel goes on and says things about this child that are, are remarkable, that any Jew hearing this would go, oh, I know Gabriel's quoting 2 Samuel 7 here. I mean, they may not have said 2 Samuel 7, but they would know the prophecy. Gabriel says to Mary, this child will be great. He'll be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Again, we hear those words and we're like, oh, okay, that's interesting. You know, some king, you know, this is great. But what we don't realize is that Gabriel's words are almost taken verbatim from the great promises God made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's almost as if he's Gabriel's cutting and pasting the prophecy from 2 Samuel 7. David was promised that he, he, he and his family would, would be great. They'd have a great name and that they would have a throne for, for David and all of his children. And his children would have a dynastic line and would reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there would be no end. So when Gabriel, Gabriel says these words to Mary, he's almost verbatim quoting from 2 Samuel 7. He's basically saying, Mary, your child is the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. And for a Jew in the first century, that is just astonishing because it's not just 2 Samuel 7. That's the foundational prophecy of a whole series of other prophecies that you can read about in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Micah and many other passages in the Old Testament. All these prophecies about a future king that Israel, yes, Israel has been suffering under all these foreign nations, but one day God is going to raise up a new son of David a descendant of David, someone who is going to reestablish the Davidic dynasty, is going to establish the kingdom and liberate the people from their enemies. And this kingdom is going to extend its reach to the ends of the earth to make God known to all the Gentiles. And, and so, so this prophecy is the foundational prophecy about that Messiah, the Messiah, the son of David. So when I think about Mary, did you know, 
just from this opening line from Gabriel. Gabriel's telling her, yes, your child is that great king. Yes, he's going to be the one to liberate us from our enemies. Yes, he's going to be the one that's going to establish his reign and rule over all the nations. So Mary knows a lot just from this opening little line from Gabriel, but it gets even better. Gabriel goes on to say, and by the way, guess what, Mary? You're not going to have this child by any ordinary human means. You're going to conceive this child as a virgin. You're going to conceive this child by the power of the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. This is Luke 1, 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. I mean, just think about this. The greatest miracle up to this point in in human history is, you know, there's been nothing compared to what Mary's going to experience. Yes, there's been people like Moses that part the waters of the Red Sea, and there's been uh, people that, you know, cured people of their leprosy in the Old Testament, and there's, there's many little miracles, but this idea of someone conceiving a child as a virgin, yes, there's been old women like Sarah in the Old Testament having a child in her old age, but conceiving as a virgin conceiving through no mere human means, this miraculous divine intervention. This is incredible. So did Mary know that Jesus was probably going to be uh, doing miracles? I, I think she did, because her, his, his whole existence is bound up with the greatest miracle in human history up to this point. This is incredible. She conceives Jesus as a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and the angel goes on to say, and this child will be called holy, the Son of God. So it points to the divine origins of this child. This child comes from God, conceived by the Holy Spirit, is the Holy Son of God. So she knew a lot just by paying attention to Gabriel's words. And then if you think about the other things, just briefly, you can look at uh, the visitation scene where Elizabeth confirms a lot of this. Blessed are you among women, for blessed is the fruit of your womb. No woman's been blessed like you, Mary. Why? Because of the fruit of your womb. This child you carry is no ordinary child is extraordinary. This is the, Elizabeth goes on to say, and why is it granted to me the mother of my Lord should come to me? This is my Lord. This child is my Lord. So so Elizabeth is confirming so much for Mary about the uniqueness of this child, being the Holy Son of God, the one that's fulfilling all prophecy. One other scene is the nativity. Just think about this. Here's Mary in the middle of her, you know, you know giving birth to this baby Jesus. And suddenly these strangers show up and report that angels appeared over the fields in, in Bethlehem. And these angels are singing glory to God. And they're announcing that today a savior has been born. He is the Messiah. He is Christ the Lord. I mean, that's just remarkable. I mean, just imagine, you know, if you were, you were a parent and you're in the hospital holding your brand new baby. And all of a sudden all these strangers come in and says, wow, we were at the city park and angels appeared to us and announced that this child is going to bring about a great renewal for the Catholic church and will become Pope someday. I mean, you'd be like, whoa, where's this coming from? You know, that'd be pretty remarkable, right? So think about what those shepherds told Mary that day, that this child is the savior. This child is the savior, that this child is, is, is Christ. He's the Messiah. This child is Lord. I mean, just by paying attention to to what's happening in her life, Mary's able to make connections, I think. She knew her son was the savior of the world right from the very beginning. But the last passage I want to share with you, and I think this is the most important one, it really connects a lot of dots for us, is that fourth joyful mystery of the rosary, that scene when Simeon uh, meets 
Mary and Joseph, when they bring the child to present him to the temple, Jesus is 40 days old, little baby. They go up for the custom, present him to the temple. And then Simeon takes his child in his arms and he says, now at last your servant can go in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people, Israel. Now there's so much in this prophecy, you know, and, and, and I think most Catholics know about what Simeon goes on to say about the future sufferings of Christ. He talks about how a sword is going to pierce Christ and it'll pierce Mary's heart also. So that's a, an allusion to what happens on the cross when the sword pierces Jesus's side on Good Friday. So Mary knew that this was going to involve bloodshed for her son. This was going to involve the death of her son. So she learns that as a 40, you know, when the child's just 40 days old. But this other part of the prophecy, I, I again, I wish if we had more time, it'd be so fun to just walk through all the prophecies of Isaiah here. But I'm just going to say really briefly, what's happening is Simeon is alluding to various prophecies in the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah foretells about how one day, you know, the, the Israelites are going to be in exile. They're going to be suffering under foreign nations, one after another. They go to Babylon, they'll eventually come back, but even they're going to be like exiled in their own land. They, they dwell in the land of Jerusalem, but they don't have control over it. The Greeks rule over them, or in, in Jesus's day, it's going to be the Romans. And and so there's just it's just a lot of suffering. And, and life in Israel is like living in the desert. It's dry, it's barren, it's arid. There, there's just no life. And these prophecies, starting in Isaiah 40, talk about how there'll be a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. So a, a prophecy about John the Baptist calling the people to repentance in the desert. But the prophecies go on, and they, and they talk about how God is going to come to the people. His glory is going to be revealed. The glory of the Lord is going to be revealed. And, and then at the climax of this prophecy of Isaiah 40, it says, behold your God. So there's going to be this big highway in the desert to bring the people back to God, and they're going to be able to see God again. God's going to be there. And then a couple chapters later in Isaiah 49, verse 6, it talks about how that this future Redeemer figure that's going to come to Israel, this servant of the Lord, will be light to the Gentiles, and his salvation shall reach to the ends of the earth. So when Simeon talks about the glory of the Lord, when he talks about salvation being revealed, when he talks about the light of revelation to the Gentiles, he's quoting directly from Isaiah 49, verse 6, Isaiah chapter 40, and all these prophecies about God coming to meet the people in their desert, in their exile from God, in their, their, their suffering under the foreign nations. I share this because one of the things that's right around this prophecy, just a couple chapters earlier, is a prophecy in Isaiah 35 that talks about the same idea that the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. So in other words, it, it's an image of Israel and their suffering is like in the desert. And then God is going to come and it's going to blossom in the desert. There's going to be life again, even in the desert here. And the same thing you find in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 4. It says, behold your God, he will come and save you. So God is going to come and meet the people in their desert, their spiritual desert of being separated from God. He's going to come meet them in their suffering and their oppression. But listen to this. Verse five tells us when God comes to bring an end to this exile, to bring an end to the suffering, what's going to happen? The eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped and the lame man 
shall leap like a heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing for joy. So in other words, people that can't speak will be able to speak again. Those that can't walk will be able to walk again. Those that can't hear will be able to hear again. Those that can't see are going to be able to see again. In other words, the prophecies all foretold that when God comes to rescue his people, what's going to happen? There's going to be all these miracles. So when I think about this song, Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day save our sons and daughters? Well, of course, he was the savior of the world. That's what the shepherds told Mary at Bethlehem. Mary doesn't need a PhD in scripture to make that connection. Mary doesn't, I mean, she was the Immaculate Conception. She did receive extraordinary graces, and that helped her understand even better who her son is. But just on a natural level, I think she knew that this child was the Savior. Did she know that this child would give sight to a blind man? That's one of the lines from the song. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would give sight to a blind man? And I would say, well, she probably did. (laughs) Because if she pondered the prophecies, she knew that when God comes to rescue his people, He's going to come rescue and there's going to be a highway in the desert. The desert's going to blossom again. It's going to bring life and you will be able to behold God again. And when that happens, what's going to happen? The blind will be able to see. The the lame will be able to walk again. So I, I think that there's these these parts of the song that that raise a question and the answer should be an unhesitating yes. <laughs> you know, another part of the song, one of the lines is, did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you delivered will soon deliver you. Did she know that? Yeah, she knew that this Christ child is coming to deliver the whole of humanity. Mary, did you know that your baby boy will one day rule the nations? Yes, she knew that. Definitely. Because that's that's the whole prophecy of, of 2 Samuel 7, that Gabriel alluded to, that all the prophets foretold that one day there'd be a new son of David. And what was he going to do? Establish the kingdom and the kingdom would reign forever. And the prophecies go on to tell about how this kingdom is going to reign over all the nations. Like Simeon foretold that this child will be a light of revelation to the nations, to the Gentiles. So Mary knew a lot. Now, when it comes to the Immaculate Conception, one last line about this song. Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you delivered will soon deliver you. I would, I would just say as a Catholic, we should just answer wholeheartedly, not only does Mary know that people are going to be delivered, but it's not, actually not the right question to ask because Mary was already delivered. She was already delivered from sin. Now, I, I'm not going to get into the whole doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, but I just want you to be clear on this, that, that Catholics, what's the dogma all about? We believe that Mary, at the moment of her conception in her mother's womb, she was conceived full of grace without original sin. I did a whole podcast explaining this a couple years ago. You can check in December, a couple years ago, like Biblical Foundations for the Immaculate Conception. If you want to learn more about that, check out the podcast from a couple years ago. I think it was 2019 or 2018 I did that. But what I want to do today is just highlight that this question, the child that you delivered will soon deliver you, as a Catholic, that's just not, that, that, that we, we wouldn't want to sing that song, that line right there. It's not accurate. Mary was already delivered. Yes, her son hasn't died yet. Her son is coming. He's going to die and rise from the dead for all sins. But the Catholic belief, the Catholic doctrine is that God can work, out, the God who is outside of time and space can use that one pivotal moment in the history of the world, the death and resurrection of Christ, and take all that he won for us on the cross and apply it to Mary in anticipation. So Mary receives the graces of Calvary 
even before Calvary happened. Why? Because God wanted to prepare Mary's heart to welcome her son, the divine son of God, into her womb. That that Jesus is no ordinary son. He's the all-holy son of God. And just as the ancient Israelites used the purest of gold, the best of materials to build the Ark of the Covenant, to make the temple, the, the, these little te- the sanctuaries holding God's holy presence, Mary's like a new Ark of the Covenant. She's like a, a new temple, a new holy of holies, welcoming Christ into her womb. It's fitting that God would make her free of sin full of his grace. That's what we celebrate this week when we celebrate the the marvels of the Immaculate Conception. And again, uh, listen to previous episodes. I often reflect on the mystery itself, and you can find it from last December or the couple Decembers ago about the meaning of this great of this great solemnity. But for today, let's have confidence that Mary, even on a natural level, knew a lot more than maybe we realized. That just by pondering the scriptures, making connections in her life, she knew who her son was. She knew what he was going to do. Was there some mystery? Like, did she know exactly like he was going to calm storms? You know, maybe, you know, she, she certainly knew he had the ability to, he's the creator of the universe, but, but did she know he was going to do some of those things? You know, there's, there's some mystery to it, of course, but certainly if she knew the prophecy, she would know he's the savior. He will rule all nations. He, he will give sight to the blind. She knew much more than many of us think today. And the lesson for us, is that we want to be like her. We should ponder the scriptures more. Let's fill our minds this this month of December, these weeks of Advent. Maybe try to unplug from all that's going on in the culture, the fear of the virus, fear of what's happening in the stock market, fear of what's happening in Washington, you know, what's happening with our favorite sports team. And, you know, maybe we just give a little quiet in our souls to have that space to ponder what Mary pondered, and that's the scriptures so that then she could let God's scriptures speak to the circumstances of her life so that she would know her son better. Do you want to know Jesus better? Then unplug a little bit from all those distractions, especially here as we get closer to Christmas, and fill your mind with God's word. Fill your mind with the readings from from the mass, maybe. Or just pull out your Bible and start reading Luke chapters 1 and 2 and Matthew 1 and 2 to understand the life of Mary and the coming of Christ in Bethlehem better, those, the stories of his infancy. Fill your mind with those good things and you'll be able to make connections in your own life, allowing God to speak to you today. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to learn any more about this theme of Mary and her humanness and uh, all that she went through step-by-step, step, check out my book, Walking with Mary, A Biblical Journey from Nazareth to the Cross. It's a book that gets into the, the humanness of Mary, Mary's interior pilgrimage of faith. Uh, and you can ponder that in these weeks of Advent. And if you have any questions, reach out to me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or you can always find me on my website, edwardsfree.com. That's edwardsri.com. to Catholic Radio Indy's Lunchtime Podcast Sampler. And we'll be back with more right after this. Turn on the radio and hear the Word of God. And God will speak through just listening. There are people listening, being impacted every day. One person at a time through radio waves. God speaks through Christian radio. Catholic Radio Indy. That should impact all of our lives. 
Hi, I'm Patty Cochran. Are you a non-Catholic who listens to Catholic Radio? Would you like to find out more about how to join the Catholic Church? There's a program called RCIA that can introduce you to the Catholic faith, and it's available at your local parish. You don't have to make a commitment to participate in the program. Just try it out. I did, and it was one of the best steps I've ever made. Contact your local parish office for more information and start your journey home. Alexa, what's the weather forecast for today? Alexa, what time is the Colts game today? Alexa, remind me to pick up the dry cleaning tomorrow. Has Alexa become a part of your daily routine? Then make sure that routine includes Alexa, play Catholic Radio Indy. Catholic Radio Indy. Quick, easy access to Catholic programming 24-7. Just say, Alexa, play Catholic Radio Indy. Catholic Radio Indy. One of the most eloquent versions of the story of Christ's birth comes from the Gospel of St. Luke. In our next offering on the sampler, Scott Hahn shares the story of the friendship between St. Luke and St. Paul and how that partnership led to the spread of the good news even until today. This is Scott Hahn, and I want to welcome you to The Road to Emmaus, a podcast from the St. Paul Center. Get the most out of Mass by truly understanding the readings. In the Word of the Lord series, John Bergsma makes the scriptures come to life. Get your copy of Reflections for Cycle C this new liturgical year. Visit our show notes at stpaulcenter.com forward slash road to learn more. Hey there, this is Scott Hahn, and I want to welcome you to The Road to Emmaus, a podcast from the St. Paul Center. Now, you might have been with us last week or not, but we were discussing the new evangelization based upon Paul's own example in Acts 17 on the Areopagus, where he connects an altar and a poem, both originating with Epimenides, to show how Paul was steeped not only in the sacred scripture of ancient Israel, but also in the best of the secular sources that he could use to reach the intellectuals there that he met on the Areopagus in Athens. Today, I'd like to look at the second prong of Paul's approach to evangelization. The first prong is doing your intellectual homework, preparing to reach those who might not know your own religious tradition, who might not share sacred scripture. Today, I would like to look at something more basic, but something every bit is fundamental and maybe more, and that is friendship. I'd like to focus in particular on how God providentially brought about a friendship between St. Paul on the one hand and St. Luke on the other that I didn't discover until I watched this movie that came out about three or four years ago entitled Paul, Apostle of Christ. Perhaps you remember Jim Caviezel playing St. Luke. I loved that movie in a way that I didn't expect, even though I can't claim to be any sort of movie critic. In fact, what I know about film could probably fit in a single frame. I'm not Siskel nor Ebert. And even the little robot character on Mystery Science Theater 3000, I don't know much about him either. But I do know a thing or two about the New Testament. And I know what I like in a movie 
And I was deeply moved by this film, Paul, Apostle of Christ, in a way that I didn't expect. It really made me aware, for the first time, of something that honestly should have been obvious to me, something that was hiding in plain view in every Bible. Why? Because the movie made me see the colossal significance of Paul's friendship with Luke not only for the apostle himself and not only in that generation of the first century, but in God's vast providential plan for the Christian church in all ages. Why? Because their relationship is different. Well, it first appears in the New Testament in chapter 16 of the Acts of the Apostles, verse 10, and it emerges in a rather subtle way. St. Luke, the author of Acts, simply begins to use the first-person plural pronoun, we, in his narrative, because now he's traveling with Paul. It's subtle, to be sure, but stunning in its subtlety. Why? Because it's the clear marker of the beginning of their friendship, as we read in verse 10. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And from there on, throughout Acts, in the subsequent chapters, we go here, we go there, we do this, we do that. Paul's companion now is Luke. And Paul, for his part, mentions Luke elsewhere rather often. Perhaps the earliest mention chronologically, it is uh, in Paul's letter to Philemon, which ends with a brief mention of Luke among Paul's, quote, fellow workers. But in the letter to the Colossians, Paul takes it up a notch, referring to Luke alone as his dear friend and doctor. In fact, he uses that phrase, which we translate as beloved physician. And then in the second of Paul's great pastoral letters to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, verse 11, after naming those who had deserted him, he says rather poignantly, Luke alone is with me. There in verse 11, only Luke indeed. And why? Because clearly Paul's relationship with Luke was unique. You know, on the one hand, he refers to Timothy and Titus as his sons, his spiritual children in 1 Timothy 1.18 and in Titus 1 verse 4. But Luke, he's a friend, beloved and loyal. He is the other half of we. He alone remains with Paul in prison. Together, Paul and Luke accomplished what no one man could ever do alone. For one thing, Luke wrote the two longest books in the New Testament, the third gospel, which bears his name, and the history of the newborn church, the Acts of the Apostles, which is the sequel to the gospel. Paul, on the other hand, wrote more New Testament books than anyone else, 13 or 14, depending on how you count. But when you do a numerical study, you discover that Luke's gospel weighs in at 19,482 Greek words, the longest by far, whereas his sequel, Acts, comes in second place at 18,450 words for a grand total of 37,933 words. You total up Paul's 13 letters— and they come to 32,407 words. And if you add Hebrews to make 14, the count only goes up to 37,460. Thus, the grand total of Paul's 14 letters come in under the grand total of just 
two of Luke's writings. But Paul and Luke together wrote at least 70,340 words out of the 138,020 words in the New Testament. That's over half of the New Testament that is the result of these two friends. Together, they wrote more than half of the books that the church has designated to be the inspired word of God, namely the New Testament. And we should never doubt that theirs was a true collaboration. Okay, they traveled together, but they thought alike. They prayed together. They lived together. They influenced one another. Certainly, Paul is Luke's mentor. And so the early church fathers, readers of the gospel of Luke, refer to Luke as Paul's gospel. And we find it in the early church fathers. Why? Because the narrative so perfectly fits the theology that we find in Paul's letters. Indeed, the friendship of Luke and Paul was the dynamo that powered the church's growth throughout the first century. That was God's plan. That was God's providential purpose in bringing them together in the first place. And the movie makes it clear. Their lives changed from that very first moment. But so did your life and mine. Because Paul and Luke together accomplished what they could never have done separately. And that, my friends, is the power of friendship in the plan of God. That is why Jesus tells his disciples in the upper room, in his farewell discourse, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know what the master is doing. I now call you friends. John 15, verse 15. In fact, that's why the early Christians used the term friends as a synonym for the members of the church in 3 John, verse 15. Friendship in the first century becomes a synonym for salvation. Friendship with God, friendship with Christ, friendship with others, this supernatural brotherhood and sisterhood. And Paul knew this, and so did Luke. Their friendship was a divine grace that enabled them to work wonders. It's so obvious, and yet I didn't see it clearly until I saw that movie, Paul, Apostle of Christ. But now that I see it, I want to show it to others, not only so that they can recognize the peculiar gift of that friendship in terms of the literary output, in terms of word count, in terms of over half of the New Testament, but perhaps it's time for us to ask ourselves the question, what wonders does God wish to work in my life and yours through friendship, through my friends, through your friends, because what happened back then can happen again. You know, a friend of mine, one of my closest friends, Mike Aquilina, has recently published a book with us entitled Friendship and the Church Fathers, Friendship and the Fathers, How the Early Church Evangelized. And he kind of points out something else that's rather obvious, but only after it's stated. Again, hiding in plain view is the fact that back in the first century, really find in the early church and what sociologists and historians of the early church have discovered, like Rodney Stark in his famous book, The Rise of Christianity, which he wrote when he was still a staunch agnostic, was that, okay, the blood of the martyrs is in part responsible for the spread of the church, but even more than martyrdom was friendship. It was the fact that you become friends of God through Christ. You enter into friendship through membership in the church, and you extend this to your neighbors. And so, apart from mass media, apart from technology, it was mostly through the means of friendship that the gospel spread and the church expanded 
almost to the point of about 40% per decade, according to Rodney Stark's calculation. And so tackling the Roman Empire, you know, you ought to be going to Rome, Jesus, and find the 12 most popular, well-educated senators, not to the backwaters of Palestine, much less to Galilee, where you're choosing fishermen and tax collectors, but by extending friendship to them and inviting them to extend friendship through the proclamation of the gospel and by living out the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, there is a form of friendship that is not only the medium for preaching the gospel, it's the message of the gospel itself. And so I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, friends in Christ, to look upon the friendships that God has arranged and to be open to other friendships that he hasn't arranged yet. Pray for those friends, extend the bonds of friendship, and put at risk those friendships in the sense that if you're praying for them and they don't know what you believe, if they don't share the gospel, you're not expressing friendship by withholding the good news. You might be subverting or betraying your friendship with them. They might not like it at first. They might not believe it until later. But once they come to see that this friendship they have with you is the instrument, the pipeline through which they have heard the good news that they are sons and daughters of God, believe me, they'll recognize that this friendship is a gift from God. I want to wrap things up, but I want to also remind you of what we've done this week and last week. Last week, we looked at an altar and a poem and how the altar came from Epimenides, and how the poem did too, and how Luke records this in Paul's Areopagus address, as we find it in Acts 17. And even though nine out of 10 biblical scholars don't connect the dots, they don't recognize Paul's own genius and how Paul was steeped in the secular sources of Greco-Roman culture. I want to remind you that we ought to accept that challenge of becoming steeped in the best literature of our own culture today in order to reach them, in order to engage them in a thoughtful way. It isn't a come-ye gospel, simply come to our Bible study. It's a go-ye gospel. Go out to the, to the Areopagus, to the Mars Hills of our day, and build bridges to reach those who are thoughtfully seeking for the truth and for the good and for the beautiful. And likewise, do that in the context of friendship. Paul's friendship with Luke becomes the engine for the old evangelization, the means by which the early church spread and the means by which the New Testament has come to us. And so let's let the medium be the message and the message be the medium. Through friendship, let's expand, let's proclaim, let's share the gospel of friendship with God. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, it's kind of exciting to think about the opportunities that are there, hiding in plain view. We ask in the name of Jesus for the gift of the Holy Spirit to empower us, to guide us, to protect us from error, but at the same time, to take us on the risky road of high adventure, to learn from those who are outside of our tradition that we might reach those who are outside of the church. We also pray for the gift of friendship through the power of the Holy Spirit, that through sharing music, by sharing good literature, by sharing our lives with others on the job, at work, in the neighborhood, in the grocery store, wherever you call us to be, wherever we happen to encounter these people apparently by chance, build these bridges 
so that through our friendship and conversation with others, you might reach those that might not ever hear a homily except for our lives and our friendship. We ask this in the name of Jesus and for his honor and glory. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Brothers and sisters, thank you for joining me on this next, on this newest episode of The Road to Emmaus, a podcast from the St. Paul Center. I invite you not only to pray for us and our apostolate, but also to look at stpaulcenter.com and check out all of the resources that we have for beginners, intermediate, advanced, for Catholic and non-Catholic alike, for Christians as well as non-Christians. And please feel free to share this with your family members and friends. Until next time, may the Lord bless you. Road to Emmaus podcast is a production of the St. Paul Center. To learn more about this podcast, visit our show notes at stpaulcenter.com forward slash road. Our production team includes producer and technical director Rory Metric, sound engineer Joseph Palmer, and associate producer and writer Molly Hostletler. Subscribe and rate the Road to Emmaus wherever you find this podcast. The St. Paul Center is a nonprofit organization facilitating life-transforming encounters with the living word of God. To find more faith-based resources, visit stpaulcenter.com. That was Friendship and Evangelization from the Road to Emmaus podcast series with Scott Hahn. Next up on today's sampler, we have an exploration of the history of Advent with Dr. Ryan M. Reeves, Assistant Professor of Historical Theology at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. A lot of questions this time of year about Advent. What is it and why do Christians light so many candles? Well, let's go through that story. But before we do, don't forget to like the video down below or hit subscribe or leave a comment. It really does help the channel out. Advent is one of those seasons, one of those times, that a lot of churches just seem to do. Many of our churches, no matter the denomination, no matter the style, the liturgical or low church, all these things, usually have some sort of celebration in the four weeks running up to Christmas. How did this get started? Well, it's actually impossible to determine the earliest dating of Advent. We don't have any real smoking gun here. We don't have a lot of information. By about the 4th century, though, we do begin to see comments about the celebration of Advent. What seems to have happened, of course, is Easter and Christmas become the two more or less fixed celebrations in the life of the church. Easter made a great deal of sense because it was related to the Jewish celebration of Passover. Christians had a different dating for it, a different way to mark the time and determine which Sunday would be Easter. Christmas began to fall on December 25th, in part because it was around the darkest time of the year. No one, by the way, believed that Jesus was actually born on December 25th. But since it was the darkest day of the year, and it was already something of a holiday, you might say, in modern lingo, for the Roman world, a celebration of now the dark days will begin to get lighter and lighter as we get towards spring, it only made sense for Christians to begin to celebrate the coming of the light of the world. So once Easter and Christmas especially are fixed, what begins to happen is those become the horizons of so much of the church year. The first half towards Easter, 
the second half towards Christmas. And it seems to have been only natural that the several weeks before begin to take on new significance. You're marching week by week closer to the big date. In this sense, Advent becomes the run-up to Christmas. That really is all it is. Advent is marking the days as we get closer and closer to the commemoration, to the celebration of the birth of our Savior. The earliest real dating that we have of this occurs probably in 380 AD at the Council of Sargossa. This is in the area of modern-day Spain or France. And what had happened is there was a heresy called Priscillianism. And this is a Gnostic heresy. It actually is relatively anti-physical, if that makes sense. It is more into spiritualism, and it rejects or it resists any idea that our physical bodies or this creation is made good. And there does seem to be some connection here, because if the heresy you're offsetting is this idea that the physical body that the physical world is itself evil, well, it seems to be that a good celebration would be Christmas. The day Jesus came, God himself took on human flesh. Whether or not that's the case, we really don't know, but it does seem to be that in 380, there was this commemoration that was doubled down on, not created out of thin air, but it was encouraged that Christians would attend the church services, if possible, once a day. Now, what happens is over time, Advent takes on new significance. But it's not the same as it is today, at least identically. In the historic practice of Advent, there were actually two weeks set apart for a different service or a different focus, and two weeks set apart to focus on Christ in the manger. You see, the word Adventus is a Latin translation of a word in the Greek New Testament, parousia, which is the coming, the entrance of the Lord. Now, the word parousia, and by extension Adventus, refers to two things. First of all, the coming of Christ himself in human flesh, but also the coming of Christ again, what we today call the second coming. So Advent in its historic practice actually had two weeks set aside to reflect on the fact that Christ will come again, that all things will be restored on earth as they are in heaven. And then two weeks were set aside to focus on the first coming, Christ in the manger. There really is no controversy about Advent. It is just one of these celebrations, though, that arises over time. And so, by the time you get to the modern era, especially to our time now, Advent is more or less fixed. Now, in the modern church, one of the things that's interesting about Advent is it's a useful way to focus the church, to focus Christians on the importance of the real story behind the Christmas story. It's a way, in other words, of getting them off the consumerism and focusing instead on the one who came to save, and the one who will come again in glory. It never fails when I turn the radio on. It is like God is speaking directly to me. Catholic Radio Indy. God is definitely using that ministry. At Catholic Radio, we love to hear from you. Call us anytime. Just recently, we found this message on our voicemail. I'm a non-Catholic that listens to your Catholic radio station, and I just want to thank you guys. I listen to uh, Catholic Answers and Al Christa sometimes, and I think her name's Teresa Tommy. I listen to her and uh, another show or two. I appreciate it. Call us at 317-870-8400 and let us know what you're thinking. I just called to say, even though I'm not a Catholic, I listen to your station. On the third Sunday of Advent, Gaudete Sunday, we light a rose candle and the priest is dressed in rose-colored vestments. Rose, not pink. 
I remember this detail because the late Father Larry Crawford emphasized each year that he was wearing rose, not pink, because Jesus did not pink from the dead. He rose. Rounding out this week's sampler, we have one of our favorites, Joan Watson, with Three Minute Theology, looking at God Ete Sunday. This coming Sunday, we celebrate Gaudete Sunday. Now, Gaudete Sunday has always been my favorite Sunday. Growing up, I loved when we got to light the rose candle. I loved when the priest wore rose vestments. And kind of conveniently, it's the closest Sunday usually to my birthday. So it's always easy for me to obey the command of the church when they say, rejoice. The word Gaudete comes from the entrance antiphon to the Sunday's Mass. Gaudete in Domino Semper. Rejoice in the Lord always. This is a Sunday of rejoicing. In the midst of our season of penance, Advent, we get to rejoice. Pick up the book of Isaiah. We hear a lot of Isaiah in the Advent readings at Daily Mass and at Sunday Mass. The prophecies of Isaiah are saturated with joy and hope and rejoicing. Why? Because the world needed a Savior. And Isaiah was telling them that the Savior was coming. If you think about it, the incarnation of our Lord is the single most important day, the most important moment in human history. I don't think we think of that enough. That is the moment that the world changed forever. Our Lord had come into the world. Our Lord had come to save us. And so sometimes it helps to put ourselves in the shoes of those pre-Christian people, the people waiting for our Lord, waiting for a Savior. They were living in darkness and they were looking for the light. And so this Sunday, Gaudete Sunday, reminds us of those prophecies of Isaiah. Rejoice, the Lord is coming, the Lord is near. Think about when John the Baptist was born. The Gospel of Luke tells us that the whole town buzzed with expectation. The whole town wondered, what did this mean? All these events that surrounded John the Baptist's life. Zechariah losing speech and then regaining it when he named his son John. The whole town was wondering. Let's put ourselves in that time of expectation. The Lord is coming. The Lord is near. It's time to live this life of hope and this life of joy. You know, Pope Francis once quipped that we can't spread the gospel if we're gloomy. He said, we often look like we just came back from a funeral. <laughs> That's not good news. No one wants to follow that. And so in this time of Advent and in this time of Gaudete Sunday, remember the command of the church. Rejoice, the Lord is near. And that's a little theology in three minutes. we have for Catholic Radio Indy's Lunchtime Podcast Sampler for today. You can find this show in podcast form at catholicradioindy.org, along with links and directions to more of the programs we've shared. We pray, Lord, let us be fully immersed in this glorious Advent season, that we may come to appreciate the true meaning of what is to come at Christmas. I'm Kent Blanford, and until next time, may God bless.
You can hear the Holy Mass every day at 8 a.m. right here on Catholic Radio Indy. Did you miss something in this show or just want to hear it again? Podcasts of this and all our other great local programs are available 24-7 at catholicradioindy.org.